Welcome. Welcome to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I am Jason Whitlock, your host. Happy Wednesday to you and yours. We're halfway through the week. Fantastic show planned for you today. Uh, be it slightly different. Anthony Walker, Pastor Anthony, will be here in studio as he is virtually every Wednesday for a little Tennessee Harmony, but we'll do it different today. Ken Harrison uh, from Promise Keepers. You guys remember Promise Keepers. It was the organization that uh, former Colorado football coach Bill McCartney started in the 1990s that uh, called men to live up to our biblical responsibility and values. It was a great movement. Uh, Ken has become, I've been told, a fan of this show and a fan of Roll Call. And so uh, Ken's in town here in Nashville, and so he and Anthony will join me uh, and react to my fire starter today, talk a little bit about Promise Keepers, talk a little bit about Roll Call, and, and perhaps how we can work together with the guys from Promise Keepers to continue to call for men to live up to our biblical responsibility. So fantastic show plan for you. I've got an incredible fire starter that is going to uh, piggyback off of yesterday's fire starter. I'm not done uh, with this Michael Orr, uh, the blind side story. There's much to be learned and disearned from this story. This story is important. And so I'm gonna jump back on it again today. Uh, with a completely different take and approach to try to help you understand what's going on in our culture and how this blindside story speaks to it. Before I do, because I want to work up some space, because you guys know once I get rolling on something that I'm passionate about, sometimes I, you know, just talk on and on and on and on forever. So I want to open up a little bit of space by uh, mentioning our great friends at Naturally It's Clean. You guys have heard me talk about Wynn Fisher and the company he started. Uh, Naturally, it's clean. It's a plant-based, enzyme-based uh, cleaning product that's one of the most powerful and one of the most eco-friendly and one of the safest things you can do. Bob Vila says Naturally, it's clean has the most eco-friendly carpet stain remover on the market today. I personally use this stuff. I use it in my home this past weekend. I had to do a bunch of cleaning. I did it with Naturally It's Clean. My mother uses it. We use it here at the studio, at the office. Naturally It's Clean is great. I love everything about it. It's manufactured right here in the US of A. They offer two free day, uh, two, they offer free two day shipping on all cleaning kits. kits. Their Essential Starter Kit, which features four of their most popular products, is one of their top selling items. My audience, this audience, can get an additional 15% off for a limited time by visiting naturallyitsclean.com slash fearless. Keep your home clean and support companies like Naturally It's Clean while you do it because they support you and your conservative values. Please check them out today and get your Jason's Essential Starter Kit by visiting naturallyitsclean.com slash fearless. That's naturallyitsclean.com com slash fearless guys I talk about it all the time supporting companies and products that support us and our values when Fisher spent time with him from lives in Indiana great guy shares our values get your stuff clean while protecting your children and your household while also supporting a company that supports our values naturally it's clean.com slash fearless 15% off for my audience all right, uh, let's get to this fire starter. And, and, and I'm going to do a great job with this fire starter, and then I'm going to 
fan the flames, and then we'll bring on, because this all flows perfectly with uh, Anthony and discipleship and, and just all the things we talk about uh, on this show. So uh, let's get to it. <clears throat> the attack on the blind side is yet another assault on biblical values disguised as racial justice. The 2009 Oscar-nominated movie depicting the relationship between a black homeless teenager, future NFL player Michael Orr, and a wealthy white couple, Sean and Leanne Tui, celebrated Christian sacrifice. The Tuies were middle-aged, ultra-rich college graduates who disrupted their lives by welcoming a six-foot-four, 300-pound football star into their home. Orr was an elite athlete whose neglected childhood rendered him academically, socially, and emotionally unprepared to take advantage of his physical gifts. With two kids of their own, including a teenage daughter, the Tuies moved Orr into their home, sought legal guardianship of him, and treated him as an adopted son. Leanne Tui ignored her friends who questioned the sanity of allowing an 18-year-old boy, unraised teenage boy, into her home alongside her daughter. The Tuies sacrificed energy and time with their own kids to make room for a child with a boatload of needs and untreated trauma. The movie softly explores the themes expressed in Luke 12:48. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Hollywood movies used to constantly follow that narrative arc. We now live in an era where popular culture is openly hostile to biblical values. There are rewards for rewriting history and dismantling symbols that support a biblical worldview. Those rewards are why so many people are comfortable believing that Sean and Leanne Tui secretly exploited Michael Orr and that the blind side is a harmful white savior trope. Orr's petition and allegations that the Tuies tricked him into a conservatorship that so that they could micromanage his finances and profit from his unique story and athleticism, that makes absolutely zero sense. When did the Tuies realize their involvement with Orr would lead to a blockbuster movie? When he moved into their home, his academic record was so poor that no Division I college would touch him. Was Sean Tui, a former basketball player, such a keen football scout that he instantly recognized that Orr would be a first-round NFL draft pick? The allegations against the Tuies are woke revisionist history. According to Tui's attorneys, According to the Tuies attorneys, Michael Orr has spent the last year or two attempting to blackmail the Tuies for $15 million for money he believes he's owed from the success of the blind side. A lawyer for the Tuies released a statement explaining that Orr has repeatedly tried to shake them down for cash. That makes far more sense than the reverse. The Tuies have been wealthy for many years. They owned a suite of fast food restaurants that, that they sold for more than $200 million. Orr earned $30 million over the course of his eight-year NFL career. A large percentage of former NFL players go broke shortly after their careers end. 
When you get rich in your 20s, long before you know what to do with money, it's not surprising that the money disappears after your forced retirement. Michael Orr reflects the larger American society. He views the world through a secular lens. He believes the writers of The Blind Side made a tragic mistake building the story around biblical sacrifice. He and his supporters think The Blind Side is solely about Michael Orr. It shouldn't celebrate sacrifice. It should focus on Orr's perseverance and overcoming adversity. That's not a bad story, but it's not as powerful as sacrifice, nor is it as accurate. The young, the young human body is constructed to persevere, endure, and overcome. Humans abuse themselves in their youth. We eat and drink the wrong things. We stay up too late and sleep too little. We cut corners and ignore good advice. We excel despite our flaws. See, the, the whole system is rigged for your youth to be very forgiving. You can make all kinds of mistakes. You can persevere through all kinds of things that older people can't. I get that Michael Orr thinks like, oh my God, it's incredible what I did. But, but he's not right. His, his, his lens is wrong. He's looking at things through a racial lens. He's looking at things through a narcissistic lens. Look what I did. Sacrifice for the betterment of our fellow man is rare and magnificent. Again, it's the highest form of human action. Man is incapable of making the kind of on the cross sacrifice Jesus did. But when we mimic him in tiny ways, that's a story worth telling and retelling. Michael Orr hates the blind side because he believes it didn't benefit him enough. It enhanced the reputation of the Tuies more than it enhanced Michael Orr's reputation. According to Sean Tui, he has tried to share his family's small financial profit from the movie with Orr. Orr has refused to accept the money. The amount is too small. Corporate media outlets have advanced the idea that the Tuies made $6 million off the blind side. Sean Tui has argued the number is grossly exaggerated. Who knows? I don't think we should care. The argument over money is just a symptom of the problem. The problem is the attack on biblical values and the use of racial justice to undermine Christian behavior. There's a crisis within black America around the destruction of family. Too many young black children grow up neglected and unloved like Michael Orr. This trauma is most acute among black boys. Christians recognize this pervasive problem because their worldview preaches the importance of the nuclear family. The attack on the blind side and the Tuies is a warning to white Christians to avoid trying to help the next Michael Orr. Here's the message. Do not be a white savior. Do not in any way try to mimic the behavior of your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The tyrannical and corrupt U.S. government owns black people and is their Lord and Savior. Government social workers, monthly welfare checks, and state-controlled foster homes will provide for current and future Michael Orr's. The Tuies are evil bigots, 
Hollywood should have never celebrated their sacrifice. Racial justice is a lie concocted by atheists sold to black believers to justify racial idolatry and a tool to detach all of us from a biblical worldview. Man color-coded justice. Adopting man's color-coded worldview guarantees increased injustice. That's my fire starter. I hope that this comes through loud and clear. I'm, I'm going to take some time to further elaborate on this. And because and, it's a constant message that, that I think needs to be hammered so that people see the connection between the alleged fight for racial justice and its connection to disconnecting all of us from a biblical worldview. There is no such thing as racial justice. There's just justice. Man, again, created this whole concept of racial justice. And that's why all conversations right now are rigged in corporate and social media built around analyzing everything from a racial perspective. And that's what's clouded and no one can see. Hey, hold on. Is any of this connected to a biblical worldview? Is any of this connected? Is any of this connected to a consistent Christian view of the world? We don't even ask those questions. Our first question is like, how does this impact our racial idolatry? And so if Michael Orr says, oh, yeah, these people that sold their business for more than $200 million screwed me out of two, three, four, five million dollars on a movie. Oh, yeah, that makes perfect sense because he's black and they're white. And oh, yeah, if Michael Orr says, yeah, they, they, they hoodwinked me into a conservatorship because they wanted to control me. Uh, because they recognized when I was 18 and homeless and had a GPA of like a point oh five. Yeah, they knew then like, man, this kid's going to the NFL. There's going to be a movie made about him and the movie's going to make us look great. And so, yeah, honey, let's bring him into my home, into our home, expose our young daughter and young son to this Six foot four, 300 pound, unraised child of a crack addicted mother who has 11 other kids. Yeah, let's bring him into our multi million dollar home because we're going to benefit off this down the road. Only race can make someone think that's what happened. Only race can do that. There was, I asked for this, uh, and we'll see if we got it, but I asked for Mike Florio from ProFootballTalk.com. I, I asked for this uh, tweet that he put out uh, this morning that, that set me off. And let me see. Yeah, I, I, I got it. I found it myself. Yeah. It's hard to reconcile the Tui family's supposed affection for Michael Orr 
with the blistering statement they authorized their lawyer to issue on their behalf. This is, and Mike Florio is white. He's a guilt-ridden white person that is, in my view, is, has all kinds of racial hangups, and he's trying to beard his racial hangups and his racial bigotry by pretending to be this champion of racial justice. And so he's putting out a tweet, pretending like, oh my God, can you believe this? They say they love Michael Orr, and they put out a statement defending themselves. That just shows you they don't love Michael Orr. They should have just laid back and let Michael Orr slander them and disparage their character and villainize the sacrifices that they made. They shouldn't contradict any of this at all. If they loved Michael Orr, they're not allowed to defend themselves. They're white, he's black. This is silly. But this is the mindset that has been promoted when you put on racial lenses to evaluate everything. Because everybody knows that if a black wealthy couple had brought a homeless white boy into their home and made the sacrifices the Tuies did, Michael Florio wouldn't tweet any of this garbage out. No one would believe Michael Orr if his name was Michael Weinstein or Michael Give me, what's a typical white guy's last name? Smith, a lot of blacksmiths. <laughs> blacksmiths. There's a lot. There's a lot. But anyway, if, it's, if he were white, if he were, uh, what, what's a typical white first name? What, what a, uh, <laughs> anyway, if he were a white guy, no one would be buying this because it doesn't make common sense. And no one would be, vilifying the movie The Blind Side as some savior trope. This whole mentality of that this, this movie is somehow wicked and evil and it should have been about Michael Orr. Are you kidding me? Are you that detached from a biblical worldview that you can't understand that sacrifice for your fellow men, that's the highest form of human action and engagement. That, that, that's the, and, and we'll ask Anthony, and we'll ask Ken Harrison, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I have the wrong understanding of the Bible, but, but to me, Jesus on the cross, making that sacrifice for me and everybody else, that's, that's the greatest action any person who's ever shown up in human form has ever undertaken. And the whole message of the Bible, or the, the whole message is like, man, if you're willing to sacrifice for your fellow man, you've done something a tiny bit like Jesus. Hats off to you. And so we used to, that movie is about human sacrifice. And we used to be inspired by that. And Michael Orr now wants a movie about what Michael Orr did. Michael Orr was a child 
he did this. He did not make great sacrifices in his early childhood. He survived. He persevered. He overcame a lot of adversity. Hats off to him. But it wasn't a story. Michael Orr's story isn't a story about great sacrifice. It's about great neglect, great perseverance. But as believers and as a culture, we used to celebrate the people willing to sacrifice. Martin Luther King gave his life for a cause. He made great sacrifice. He and again, some maybe he went too far with his, uh, you know, personal life and, and all the sacrifice he made for his own family, for the benefit of others. But that's what we celebrated. The people that died during the Civil War, the people that died during the Civil Rights Movement, the, the, the people that, that just make incredible sacrifices for human progress. That, that's what we sacrifice in movies used to be that that's what we celebrate in movies used to be about that because we were trying at one point just a little bit in Hollywood to promote a biblical worldview. And now we've gone the total opposite direction. The entire culture is hostile to a biblical worldview. It's hostile to people making a sacrifice for the betterment of mankind. Everything is about me and how does it impact my brand? And that's what Michael Orr is really complaining about. Hey, this movie didn't enhance my brand. It didn't show me as a seven year old developing this brilliant visionary plan to become a professional athlete. And now you have all these people, media people, Mike Florio, others, everybody in corporate media that's so detached from a biblical worldview, they thought, yeah, Michael Orr is right. That movie was about him. It was about his life. It was about everything about it was about him. No, man, the movie was really, and I don't blame Michael Orr was part of the story, but the story was about the sacrifice the Tuohys made. And I don't have a problem with it because I'm not judging things based off of, well, they're white. And so I can't celebrate their sacrifice. I, I see the movie and I, and I rewatched it yesterday and I saw it when it came out. I see the movie as like, oh, look at these Christians. And look at the sacrifice they're willing to make. And this woman fell out with her friends over allowing this black boy to come into her house uh, with that daughter in her house. Wow, look at these Christians. Th th that's the message. But again, if you have these racial lenses on, every oh, look at these white people. And man, they must have been thinking about the money they were going to make off this black kid. That, that, it's a ridiculous thought. These people were millionaires long before they ever came across Michael Tui. They had a, owned a bunch of fast food restaurant chains that put millions of dollars in their pocket and they eventually sold it for $200 million. Uh, when you start evaluating a crime, you identify motive. 
And, and Michael Orr is alleging that a crime took place, that he was exploited. And they, they misled me and said they adopted me and really they owe me millions of dollars. He's alleging there's a crime. And so the first thing, OK, well, hold on. What's the motive here? Oh, money. Well, they got plenty of money. So maybe money is not their motive. So then you does Michael Orr have plenty of money? Well, I don't know. I mean, he made a nice sum of money, but there's plenty of research and studies to say these NFL players go broke. Half of them go broke just two to three years after their career is over, despite all the money they made. So maybe his motive is money. And if you go read his books, if you watch his interviews and the things that he's done, he's he's selling a second book right now. And he would love to profit from the first movie. And if not, he would love to hoodwink someone into making a second blindside movie where he's the star and where everybody focuses on how he persevered and the adversity that he overcame. And, and part of that, in, in Michael Orr's mind, because I've read his book and I've listened to his interviews, he thinks that's what young kids need to hear. Look, I survived. You can too. He's very naive and he doesn't have a sophisticated worldview. He, he, he doesn't understand that the overwhelming majority of children that come from his situation, mother on crack, homeless, not going to school, none of those people, 99.5% of them people will never be six foot four. He doesn't, his NFL success is a gift from God because it's a genetics lottery victory. If he was five foot nine, like the overwhelming majority of men in America, like, I, I think only 10, 12 percent of American men are six foot two or taller. Twelve percent of American men, six foot two or taller. When you go to six, four, that's dropping down to about five or four percent. If he were six foot. 5'11", he wouldn't be an NFL player. He would have never made that money. And so he's, he, he wants to put out a movie that says, yeah, do what I did. Look at me. Yeah, you're never going to be six foot four. And, and uh, you know, it's very unlikely you would ever be a professional athlete. But, hey, look at me. I'm the way. And, and that's that's the whole problem with this influencer era that we're living in. Everybody's pointing to themselves. I'm the way. If they just make a movie or tell a story about me, everybody will see what they should do. Let me start a podcast pointing to me. And tell here's what I did. Here's how I made it. And, and what they miss, and this is where I, I'm just so upset with people that call themselves believers. That movie, in just a very soft way, but if you have any biblical understanding, it's trying to tell you Jesus is the way. 
Christian behavior is the way. If you're watching this show and have watched it previously or at any time, it's why I'm so hard on myself. Because I'm not the way and I don't want anybody to confuse themselves and think, yeah, Jason's got this figured out. Just follow what Jason does or says. I'm not, that's not the message of this show. I hope that's not going, I hope no one's missing that. The message of this show is, I'm a clown. I've done a lot of stupid things. The only thing that has helped me is trying to obey God. Jesus is the way. I come on here every day trying to figure out a way to repeat that message and to use things going on in culture to point you that direction. The whole culture is telling you LeBron James is the way. Michael Orr is the way. Tom Brady's the way. Whoever, who, Aaron Rodgers, Allen Iverson, all these idols, idolatry is through the roof. And it's all taking us away from God. Jesus is the way. And so in a small way, Hollywood used to make movies with a narrative arc that would, would always point you back to, man, look at this man or woman sacrificing for the benefit of other men and women or children. We'd have this heroic arc, and that was the constant drumbeat. TV shows and, and movies and music all used to celebrate the people that would sacrifice and in some tiny way mimic the behavior of Jesus Christ. And now, because of racial idolatry and the alleged pursuit of racial justice, we, oh yeah, we're completely blinded. When we see people behaving in a Christian way, when we see people trying to live out Luke 12 and 48, when we see people that have earned millions of dollars say, hey, honey, how can we help someone else? And I'm not saying all of their motives and agenda is in perfect alignment and they're angel-like figures, but having acquired some wealth, I know that feeling of like, hey, what can I do to help someone else? I've been given much. How can I share it with others? What sacrifices can I make so that others can benefit? I know that feeling. I've been, it, it, I've been involved with people that have needed help. And again, this isn't me pointing to me. It's because it's I wouldn't do it unless I was trying to be obedient to God. My instincts, I tell you all the time on this show, drive to a strip club, go to Vegas and gamble and party, go hook up with some girl and take her on some trip. That's what I want to do most days. And I had to flee Los Angeles to get out of that mindset and to get away from those demonic thoughts and that, 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 that way of living and executing my life. 
talk about it all the time, and I'm just trying to be obedient to God, that, that produces better results than me going the way that I think I should go. So, this attack on the blind side, and, and they're couching it as, a, no, this is an attack on the Tuies, those racist white people that moved that kid in their house because they knew they were going to profit millions of dollars. I mean, it's just stupid. And it's, it's walking you away from your faith. It's walking you away from the values that can improve your life and can improve this society. We, we've been, I, I love that, and Justin and Ren or whoever came up with that over the shoulder, the blind hate, I love it. That's, that's great. Because that's what, that's what idolatry does. It blinds you and makes you hateful. And you can't see what's clearly in front of your face. The movie The Blind Side is a story about Christian values and trying to execute some Christian values. Are, those, are the two E's perfect? No, none of us are. But they took a chance on a kid and tried to help him out out of their Christian faith, out of trying to be Christians. Trust me, I'm sure she'd rather have bought Louis Vuitton bags, and he probably would have loved to have gone on some boys trips and, and who knows what, buy an extra private plane, who, who knows, I'm sure they'd rather do that. But they, instead they took some of their time, some of their energy, some of their money and invested it in Michael Orr, some kid they didn't know, who had been neglected, who by any objective analysis was dangerous. Anytime you grow up that neglected by both of your parents and your mother strung out on drugs, you're dangerous. And, and, and I say that I'm, I'm not speculating here. And, and I, I, I know it personally from my own family. And, and they took a chance out of their faith, and, and now we're taking a dump on them over racial ideology. It makes me sick. Anyway, I got it off my chest. Uh, we're going to talk about this. I think it's a perfect conversation to have with Ken Harrison. He runs Promise Keepers. Uh, Promise Keepers tries to get men to live up to their biblical responsibilities and values. I think it's a perfect conversation for Anthony. Anthony's whole ministry is about discipleship. That's all that he's about is discipleship of young people, men and women and, and adults, just discipling people in the ways of God, in the ways that God wants us to go. Perfect conversation for these guys. We'll do that uh, for the remainder of the show. Uh, before I go, I want to tell you guys about uh, Samaritan Ministries. Tired of someone else telling you where to go when you have a medical need? Are you ready to take control of your health care? Samaritan Ministries could be the solution you're looking for. They connect hundreds of thousands of Christians across the nation who come together through prayer, encouragement, and financial support when a medical need arises. It's not insurance, and you're not limited by restrictive networks. Say you have a medical need. You don't have to check and see what hospital is in your network or be concerned about the doctor being in network too. No, 
You go to the hospital, you choose, and don't give a second thought as to what's in network and what's not, because with Samaritan Ministries, you're in control of your health care. Afterwards, fellow members pray for you and send money directly to you to help you pay your medical bills. And when they have a medical need, you'll do the same for them. That's what biblical health care sharing looks like. Check it out today at SamaritanMinistries.org slash fearless. We back uh, with Ken Harrison and Anthony Walker. It's my obligation to hate discrimination, raising up your hands for freedom. Michael Orr, the young homeless football player depicted in the movie The Blind Side, might be every bit as smart as he says he is. He certainly knows how to hustle. With his NFL career well in the rearview mirror, the 37-year-old former Baltimore Raven is trashing the white family that rescued him from the Memphis streets to launch a career in Hollywood. Orr has written a second book, and he's suing Sean and Leanne Tui to draw attention to it. The goal is for a Hollywood producer to take notice and greenlight a sequel to The Blind Side, a movie that earned Sandra Bullock an Oscar and grossed $300 million. Hollywood loves a nostalgic sequel. Tom Cruise's Top Gun Maverick crushed at the box office. Hollywood also loves movies that demonize white Christians and portrays them as exploiters of black people. Everybody knows all this. Michael Orr certainly does. He's angry. He made no money off the original Blind Side. Plus, he's irate the original did not showcase the role he played in lifting himself out of poverty. Orr has seen the Obamas and everybody else cash lucrative checks from Netflix and other movie-making entities off racial grip. Why shouldn't Orr cash in? He's entitled. Influencers across social media will help him sell the lie that the Tuies brought him into their multi-million dollar home at age 17 because they knew he would be a football star and worthy of a blockbuster movie. That's how it always works out when a black kid neglected by his crack-addicted mother moves in with a white couple. The child is actually doing the white couple a favor. The child is letting the white couple cleanse themselves of generational racism. Now it's time for Michael Orr to cash in with reparations. The blind side, $2 million. <laughs> Welcome back. Uh, we're going to continue the conversation about Michael Orr, The Blind Side, and some of the points I made in my Firestarter. We're going to do that while also having some Tennessee Harmony. Anthony Walker in the studio with us, joined by Ken Harrison, the director of Promise Keepers, uh, as we'd like to do here. Anthony, uh, start us off with a prayer, and then we'll continue the conversation. Father God, we're thankful for this day and thankful for the blessings that you've bestowed upon us. Uh, Father, help us to, uh, as we navigate through the world, to always look to you, the author and finisher of our faith. Help us uh, to be better disciples and make disciples. We ask all these favors and blessings in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So first, we got to start out by Ken giving us a brief introduction of yourself so the audience knows who you are. And then we, 
I'm not going to do it initially because I want to talk about the blind side and some of this other stuff, but I'm going to circle back for a deeper conversation about Promise Keepers and what you got going on. But if you could explain to the audience what you're doing with Promise Keepers, how long you've been involved, with what, what, what Promise Keepers is doing today, give us some of that. Yeah, so Promise Keepers, we realize that we have to call men back to courage. I think that that's a, such a breakdown in our society right now. So we have a tour we're starting off at A.R. Bernard's Church in New York on December 1st called Daring Faith. And we're going to go into all that. But we got to come back and call men back to being men of God. And so I actually never went to a Promise Keepers event back when they were huge. Wow. Because I was an L.A. cop. And, uh, and I remember a guy coming and saying, Promise Keepers going to be at the L.A. Coliseum. And I said, well, what's Promise Keepers? And he said, well, it's a bunch of Christian guys that get together and hug and cry. And I'm like, yeah, I'm out. <laughs> so <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't go to my own, my own thing. But, um, yeah, it's going to be in 2024, we're going to 15 different cities. And we're launching it. And we're going to simulcast it for free all over the world on December 1st from New York. Is it? different in any way from what Promise Keepers was doing under Bill McCartney. I mean, you live in Colorado now. Is that because of your relationship with Promise Keepers or, or walk us through that a little bit? Yeah, Coach is a good friend. He's got Alzheimer's, but he's still, it's so funny because I love to talk to Coach. But, and he kind of, kind of gets off, you know, with the Alzheimer's, but he, he remembers the history real well. So if Coach gets off in a loop, I'll just say, Coach, tell me about the Orange Bowl. Oh, it was Lou Holtz, Notre Dame. <laughs> 1990. <laughs> you know, he's, he's right there. So he's still, he's still fresh. But yeah, um, it'll be an abbreviated tour. So Promise Keepers used to be a Friday night and a Saturday. And we did that at Dallas Cowboys Stadium two years ago in the middle of COVID. And we had 30,000 people there. And the Washington Post wrote it up and couldn't believe we had such a great attendance. But we realized what we want to do is get to as many cities in America as we can. So we're doing an abbreviated three-hour Friday night only event where guys will show up. It'll be very intense, and we're going we're gonna to handle every issue. We're not backing down from anything. So why do bad things happen to good people? And we're going to have some guys talk about losing their children, you know, dying, and why godly men. And how do we deal with this whole sexual perversion movement we see? And we're going to have a, a person there who was saved out of that lifestyle. And how do we deal with all that? Um, we're going to talk about being courageous and why that's so important and why... If we want to help women and children, we got to help men. Because when men are screwed up, it's women and children who suffer. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot about you know your monologue, which was excellent, just excellent, by the way. Um, a lot of this stuff is happening because people are not standing up for truth. Mm -hmm. Who's standing up for these people and saying, wait a minute, what's going on? And I think that's part of your challenge is, is someone going to stand up and defend these people? Or are we all just going to cower again to the mass media spin on all this. So I'm going to try to save some time to circle back to some more conversation about Promise Keepers, but I do want to talk about the movie The Blind Side One because I know Anthony is a huge movie buff like myself, <laughs> and Anthony can help me understand or correct and yourself, Ken. If, if some of the things I'm suggesting or saying about this movie are saying about the, the narrative arc of the Bible and how movies used to kind of reflect that. Am I wrong for identifying sacrifice for your fellow man as the highest form of action that we can take as humans? I, that's, that's spot on. 
Uh, being being sacrificial is reminiscent of the cross. It is reminiscent to what we are supposed to do to put others before yourself. Um, and that's level one of sacrifice to, to think about somebody else before I think about me. But then if we get to a place where we understand what we've been given, we understand, man, I've been blessed. I have even if I just have what I may consider as a little it's enough to share with others, to give to others. And that opens up the door for, you know, great conversation about Christ, great opportunity to witness, great opportunity to disciple through that. So sacrifice is, I, you know, I remember the movie and I, I can see two different lenses of it. There is the lens. I think the overall message is, you know, obviously the good feel good story, the sacrifice, that's the overall message. And then, you know, I can see how, you know, someone could look at that to see, you know, well, well, how does this, you know, what happens? Because they kind of leave it like they did, you know, kind of open ended. It's like, well, what how does this really play out in life? But uh, yeah, sacrifice is primary on that movie. So, Kim, you're tall. Are you a former athlete? I mean, you're. Small college only, man. Okay, connected it. So I'm sure you saw the blind side. I did, yeah. Yeah. And and so I look at the movie and I think where we've changed. The movie was very popular in 2009 and it wasn't controversial in 2009. It was just a feel-good movie and everybody felt good about it. But social media, in my view, has changed everybody's lens, and so now the movie's being evaluated in racial terms. And, and I don't think that that's healthy. I saw a movie in 2009, and then when I rewatched it yesterday, it's like, oh, here's some Christians that made a sacrifice for a young child that they weren't connected to, and, and we need more of that, not less of it. You know, the Bible said, says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Mm -hmm. Humility is the sign of, of being in love with Jesus Christ, right? When we're not repentant, when we want to hold on to our sin, what we want to do is make other sins that are worse than our own. So we're saying, God, look over there at that guy. He's worse than me. So don't condemn me, rather than truly coming to the grace of Jesus Christ. So race has become the newest thing, right? Everyone sees racism behind every bush. And of course, the, defe the def definer of racism is that person, right? So if, if I can point, well, I'm, at least I'm not a racist like that guy, then don't look at my sexual perversion over here. Don't look at my greed. Don't look at my gossip and my slander or my cowardice, because at least I'm not a racist. Mm. And I think that's why it has taken so much traction, because racism is such a slippery thing. Well, what exactly is it and how do you define it? I mean, I define racism, as like you were saying, is why are we not elevating Ben Carson? Why are we not elevating Clarence Thomas or Tim Scott? These are guys who came from ghetto situations really bad and became a, a Supreme Court justice, a brain surgeon, and a U.S. senator. But we don't talk about them. We just talk about guys who made themselves big by athletics. Isn't that, isn't that itself contemptuous? I, I certainly think it's idolatrous and it's 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 well they're not famous and they're not cool and the world isn't into them the way we are athletes uh 
what what do you all think of my interpretation of Michael or his complaints based off of what I can read and having read his entire book from 2011, that complaint is in his book very subtly, like, hey, look what I did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and part of my argument against that is that like, hey man, you were a kid and, and kids are built for survival and, and built for, you know, you get beat up on the football field at 15, you recover a lot quicker than a guy that gets beat up on the football field at 35. It, it, it's, it's just youth, survive and persevere. I, we laugh all the time in my family that uh, we were really poor. I had no idea. Yeah. I was a kid, I had no idea. And, and so, but you get old, you go, oh, I was poor and things were terrible. Well, no, I, my, I wasn't terrible. We ate sugar and butter sandwiches and thought it was great. And, <laughs> you know, and hot dogs and whatever. But yeah. I, I, the, the Michael Orr, I, I, I watch him, Anthony, and all I think is, man, he needs to be discipled because he's not leaning into gratitude and he doesn't even understand that like, bro, I, I get it, you saw Michael Jordan at seven and, and you thought, hey, I'm gonna be a professional athlete, but that's not a plan that works for 99.9% of kids. So when I see that and I, I'm, I try to see, you know, I was first brought to this thinking, why now? Like, why is he going through this? But it was not too long after he wrote that book or right around that same time, that he talked about his having to overcome that concussion that ended his career, basically. He had a concussion, it took him two years to come back and spending that time dealing with processing. Now, I will agree with you thousand uh, percent. Our bodies physically you know, is much better younger than older, no doubt. But one area that children do fail in is interpretation and processing. Like we don't know as a kid, how do I deal with you? You take kids who are, you know, have a parent that is physically abused. Okay, how do I deal with that? You know, my dad says he loves my mom, but he's hitting her. Like what goes in their mind and how does that develop with them? So when I look at or I see a kid that you're right, you survived. You survived a father who wasn't there, a mom who's drug addicted, a mom who would leave you guys hours, days at a time. You have to fend for yourself. Like as a kid, that that should not be on a kid's mind. And then I'm wondering, has he really had an opportunity to process this, to really understand? So now you are in a situation which is like heaven, you know, to, to someone who is, you know, hand to mouth, basically, I don't have anything to now you're you're rescued. But he may see and I believe that he would say that now he sees it as I survived. So the movie comes out and the movie, number one, anybody watching a movie, especially a biopic, there's so much artistic license. No movie is going to be able to tell the story accurately. So certainly not in two hours. You can't you can't it's two hours. You can't tell. 20 years of life. So so there there's artistic license. There's all of this. 
But I think he looks back to say, hey, I survived out of this. I survived. Now, what I would encourage and and, and when I look at his story, a a guy from Scripture comes to mind, a guy by the name of Joseph. Joseph, his life, we know him as going, you know, from the pit to the palace. But his life was really a lot of ups and downs. There were blessings and there were burdens. And some of them, they get muddied. For example, his dad just spontaneously gives him a coat of many colors. Wow, what a blessing. But that coat, as he wears it, causes his brothers to be jealous of him and mean towards him. But was it a blessing or a burden? It's kind of both in this scenario. He's sold into slavery by his brothers, which puts him on a track to be the second most powerful person in the world, uh, being Pharaoh's assistant, basically, or vice Pharaoh. So was it a burden? Was it totally a loss or was it a blessing? So I say that with Michael or um, sure, when you're 18 years old uh, and, and you're in college and this is before NIL deals and stuff, someone gets your story, writes a book, wants to do a movie. They've got to sign some documents to make this clear. I would argue to him. I believe that your draft status is improved a little bit, not just by your hard work, but by the visibility that you get. There's a blessing in that. So what they did for you in helping this movie to be produced and put out actually put more eyes on you, giving you even more. That's a blessing. I I think he needs to look now. Were there some burdens along the way? No doubt. Did he survive? Sure. But to look back and say, oh, it was all, hey, I'm the star of this because I did. You're knocking out what God opened the door for you. There was if these people had no God in them, what's inspiring them to come? And like you said, invite him in, take him in, invest in his life. Regardless, they weren't looking at NFL. They're looking at we want to help you learn how to read and write and, and make good grades to be successful, period. But God given talent helped you to get to where you were as well. So they invested in that. It's blessings and burdens. And the end of the day, we got to thank God. You know, the blessings and burden thing is, it's, I get the burden aspect that I hadn't, I had thought of, but but I just kind of dismiss as like, man, I'm going to just have to deal with that. Because, He's having to deal, a locker room environment is a place where feelings aren't spared. And so I've seen him complain years ago Mm -hmm. in in the book, like teammates would give him a hard time about the movie or crack little jokes and, and, you know, man, you couldn't even read or blah, blah, blah. So there is that burden of like, hey, your story is exposed. Your mom was a crack. Mm -hmm addicted person that left you for dead and none of that is comfortable or you know you want to deal with in private you don't want it in a movie and and so I I get that and and I get the burden of that but there's nothing that could happen to me that would make me turn on this Tui family and even if I thought 
they made two or three, five million dollars off the movie. I wouldn't turn on them for that because, and again, he, he's 37. I think he should be old enough to realize. I'm not counting dollars, but just in terms of value, the investment they made in him as a high school senior, four years of college, because again, a lot of this stuff's not getting told, but they sent that woman that tutored him to Ole Miss to tutor him the entire time he was at Ole Miss. And so he got millions of dollars, and, I, and I'm not counting dollars, I'm just talking about like in value, whatever they made on the movie, whether it's 100,000 or 10 million, the kind of investment they made in him from 18 to 22, but that's a fair exchange. Oh, they, they made that, and I got to learn how to read. They uh, made it to the NFL, earned 30 million. I just, I just don't get the complaints. <laughs> well, you know, I spent a lot of time in locker rooms, in athletics, and then on the LAPD. And you should have, I, I grew up in Oregon. So on the LAPD, I mean, all I ever heard was, you know, did I see Bigfoot and, you know, did I grow up smoking marijuana? And I mean, so that's just locker rooms. And yeah. everybody, and, and any, in the military and all those things, any little thing that's wrong with you, guys are And the only, the only thing that I will say is different about, I'm gonna speculate about your background, but not my own. The difference between Michael Orr and you and me is that I came home every day to my mother and father. And so there's a level of insecurity that I just don't have. I'll never be able to relate to the level of insecurity. Uh, five, six years old, and you may come home and your door is locked and your mama's not gonna be there for two or three days. That's gonna create some insecurity that he, this man needs to be on a therapy couch probably for the rest of his life to get over that insecurity. And so the jokes that you and I blow off in a locker room probably cut this man like a knife. And, uh, but again, that's where I'm thinking at 37 and he's married now and he, he married a woman he'd been dating for 17 years. This isn't some fly by night. It seems like somebody would be helping him understand like, hey, you got some unaddressed trauma that we have to address through the word of God, a minister, a church home, their professional therapy, discipleship from another man that, and, and that's where I promise keepers and what you do every day at Highway 231, this man is in desperate need of that. You know, that's a really great point. So it shows the importance of fatherhood, yeah. right? It also shows every one of us went through trauma when we were kids, some more than others, mm -hmm. some brutal you know, abuse and whatnot. And we don't preach enough in the church about the fact that we have an enemy who is a liar and an accuser. And so when Satan sees whatever we've put up with in trauma, he is gonna continue to put a, a pry rod in there and push and push and push and keep on that lie. Yep. And this is why discipleship is so important because the Bible says to confess your, your sins one to another. Uh, we, we need to have real authentic relationships and friendships with men where well, we can come and say, man, I suffer with this. I mean, can you imagine, we did a study of Promise Keepers about uh, sexual uh, abuse and trauma for kids. Most men who have, have suffered from sexual abuse as a kid, and there's a lot more than you might think, mm -hmm. struggle with same-sex attraction. It doesn't mean they're gay, 
but it means they struggle because the devil's always in their head and is always telling them it's your fault, it's your fault, it's your fault. And they, they tend to go off into different issues that, where there's trauma. Can you imagine the church today trying to go to a group of men and tell them that you, su you suffer same-sex attraction? That, that, is that a safe space? Yeah. But we have got to, in humility, counsel each other, disciple each other, and say, I haven't walked in that guy's shoes, so let me, in love and grace, with the Bible as truth, because it's the only truth there is. But, you know, as I said that about Michael Orr, I think that was a good correction to me. I'm like, yeah, man, I mean, we all put up with junk in the locker room, big deal. Well, it was a bigger deal for him than for me, because mm. I had a strong fit. My dad was a professional boxer, so I grew up with him making fun of me. <laughs> so. And making fun of you and patting you on the back when you did something exactly great. Right. This yeah. dude never got a pat on his back from his dad, ever in his life. That, and, and that survival that survival tactic for him is what I see him crying out for. I survived this, not I was saved and rescued, but what Ken is saying here, which really crystallizes the point, what discipleship does is it helps us to navigate life through the lens of following Jesus, because we all have something Mine not, might not be yours and mine might not be his, but where we both relate is the solution to what we're all dealing with is in Christ. And so it is the man or the father, number one, but the man who is coming to him to say, hey, man, listen, I understand. Now, there's somebody in a men's group, you know, with the, the men's group that I have at 231, there's all kinds of situations that can counsel into that. But what tends to happen a lot of time with men is that we repress it. We just, like you use the term, you said, hey, I just got to deal with it. Well, what does that mean? You know, what does that just get over? What is, how does that, and, and what he has done, and this is, I'm looking, I'm viewing Michael's life. What he's done is probably filtered that into athletics. He's filtered that into, you know, pursuing this, but now when you leave that and you have to sit with, OK, who am I now without this outlet of contact sports? Who am I now without all of this back and forth? And now you begin to dissect and say, man, you know what? They just did this to take advantage of me when actually this was a way of helping to save your life. Because I, it was I believe it was in his book that he mentioned how drug, you know, People wanted him to be their muscle, how, you know, he would have been pursued by gangs. And God uses this as a mechanism to save you. As you pointed out in your monologue, I, I can't judge the Tui's hearts, you know, all their intentions, pure and perfect. I don't know. But I do know that what God has done in both of their situations the, on the Tui side and Michael's side is an evidence of his power and his grace. Now, when we come back to the throne and we thank him for it, it is not me telling my story at the end of the day. It's me telling his story that, that gets the most impact. And, you know, that's one of the things I actually liked about his 2011 book is there were some aspects of it a tiny bit off-putting, but he did walk through all the different people that helped him. And it was a long list of people. And he pointed to them and all. He, he didn't point them out 
with the reverence and gratitude that perhaps I would have taken, but he did tell the story accurate, this person and that person, uh, the, the Steve, I think they got Big Tony Henderson was yeah, the yeah. He, he let me live, stay in their house and Miss Sue and, and some other people and even the social worker, he went and hunted down the social worker that he had was a kid, gave her credit for, basically gave her credit for taking him away from his mother because it was just too chaotic of an environment. But, but Anthony, I, I hear you making a point about, and I do think he's suffering from identity issues. He, seven years old, I won't be a professional athlete. Now he's 37 years old, he's been out of the NFL two, three, four years. He has no identity. He, 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 he doesn't have a, other than being famous for the blind side, and, and again, that's why I think he's written another book, and I think he wants another movie, to be honest with you, uh, but, but he, he has no identity. And again, this is where I sit there and I, I read his story and I see what he's doing. He needs to be discipled. He needs the identity in Christ and see himself through that lens. And then his whole book would be unpacked a little bit differently with just more gratitude, more expression of gratitude. But then I think about, I don't know if you saw this, his mother, and he didn't express this in a cruel way. He just kept, he mentioned it just matter-of-factly. His mother and he had 11 siblings and they were really tight. And none of them ever, ever and he repeated this several times, they never told each other they loved each other. Never knew his father. His mama never said the words, I love you. Mm. None of his siblings ever said the word, I love you. This guy has incredible trauma. And that's why I'm glad I'm talking to you guys because I'm looking for a story from either one of you through Promise Keepers or through 231. Mm -hmm. when, when a child goes through that kind of neglect and trauma, there's a cynical view of, that person cannot be fixed. That person is just damaged and buyer beware or investor beware. Anthony, Ken, have you? No, no, no. It, it, it's very possible. We actually have a situation now where a family of three brothers uh, was just dropped off basically at our church um, needing help because of this abandonment and situations like that. And we had a family to take them in. But what they're having to understand is you have to be a tough family, a loving family to be able to counterbalance and counteract what they've experienced. Because we don't know for kids how deep those scars go. We don't know. A, a kid sitting silently, we don't know is this is he scared? Is he just pensive, thoughtful? What's going on and how they grow up in that? So you got to be tough. But I've seen it multiple times within our within our church uh, of guys who have had that rough, very rough background. But through the power of the word and through the power of male discipleship, come out of that thing stronger than, than you would know. And, and they, they can look back to say, had this impact not happened, I would have been. I'll say this before, before Ken gets in. The pattern that we see biblically 
it takes a man to confirm manhood. Mm -hmm. If a man does not have that man to confirm manhood, he will forever be chasing identity. He can't make enough money. He can't have enough possessions. He can't be bodybuilding enough. He can't, the accolades can go through the roof, but he won't have that guy to say, hey, you made it, son. You're a man. Even Jesus has God, his father, to say, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. So if you don't have that, so we have to, as men, uh, reach back and make sure that we're doing that. I would have you drop the mic <laughs> under that very ample beard of yours, but it's not big enough to yeah. drop. <laughs> drop that little. Uh, how we see ourselves, our identity will dictate how we behave. One of the, the failures we've had in the evangelical church is that we preach that you're a sinner and yet you were saved and we stop. Mm. And that's not the whole picture. That's the picture Satan wants you to have, to see yourself as a sinner instead of a son of God. Because when you got saved, you got the Holy Spirit deposited in you and you became a very valuable part of the plan. Ephesians 2.10 says that each one of us has a series of good works that were prepared at the beginning of time. Yes us to accomplish. So I was a sinner and I may see a struggle. I mean, you brought that out. I may still have desires that aren't quite right. Part of the daily life is denying self and following the Lord. Mm -hmm. And then quickly on yours on a story, because I get these all the time. Promise Keeper stories are unbelievable. Mm. You know, I were, in fact, I actually had to stop wearing Promise Keeper stuff to the airport stuff because I get stopped so much I couldn't get to my plane. I mean, I, people grab me. Oh, I, got, I went to Promise Keepers when I was 12 and this and that. But one of the stories I heard that impacted me so much was from a young lady um, who said that her father, she was in college, went to a Promise Keepers event. He was an alcoholic, a workaholic. He had never told her he loved her. You know, just completely vacant dad. He went to a Promise Keepers event. And this ain't about Promise Keepers, it's about Jesus Christ, right? But he heard the gospel and he got saved. He went straight to her college, fell on his knees, and asked her for forgiveness. Mm. And she said, you know, Ken, today, 20 years later, my dad is my best friend. Wow. My dad is my best friend. And he takes spiritual leadership of his family. And I say that to say, it's never too late. Right. It's never too late. You may be 70 years old, you may be 90. Your daughter wants you to be her hero, mm -hmm. if you're a dad. Mm -hmm. Your son wants someone to look up to. And you may have screwed up, and you may have screwed up really bad. I'll tell you what, the most valuable words in a marriage or in, or in parenthood are not, I love you. Those are really valuable, but the most valuable words are, I am sorry. Because we've all screwed up. Yeah. But to go to your child in humility and say, I'm sorry, man, does that make a difference? And that's the same in discipleship, because we men, I mean, never underestimate the, the power of male pride. But something that just shoots that right mm -hmm. through the heart is taking accountability for who you are and understanding I was a sinner and I do screw up, but by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, I have a mission on my life to accomplish and I'm gonna accomplish it. And no, no liar, no Satan, no anybody is gonna keep me from accomplishing my plan that the Lord laid down for me at the beginning of time. I'm gonna add a story to that you guys have, uh, one I thought about it yesterday and then you guys just re-triggered in my mind. And, it, and it, you know, I think about it all the time. I got a cousin that I was, grew up with, younger than me, Josh is 19, 18 years younger than me, 
he came to live with me in Kansas City because, you know, he had gone down the wrong path. I think he came to me when he was 14 years old and went well for two years. And then, uh, you know, he slid another direction. He thought I was too hard on him. Went back to Indianapolis, got involved in his old habits. Next thing you know, he's locked up. He's, he's doing two or three years. And, and you sit there, I sat there like, man, it was all for nothing. And, and it all runs through your mind like, you second guessing myself, was I too hard on him? Should I have made a bigger effort to get, because he, he went home and I could have begged him to come back, but you know, part of me, pride or whatever, just like being a tough guy or whatever. And, and so when he's locked up and you're sitting there going, it was all for nothing. Now, he's probably been out 10, 12 years or whatever, and we're such good friends. He's like a little son, and now he talks all the time about all the things I used to tell him in private and, and the conversations we'd have and how he was sitting there locked up to going, man, Jason told me this, and Jason said X, Y, and Z. And, and on the other side of him coming out of jail, now I see like, oh, the, the, the seeds I planted dear, did bear fruit. And so you got to stick with it and trust God is what, mm-hmm. <laughs> is what I would say to people. And, and your efforts aren't in vain. And, and, and so I look at the Tuies and I look at Orr right now, and I'm sure the Tuies are sitting there going, holy yeah. cow. Yeah. But five years from now, it may be a completely different deal. You know, no telling what's going on with Michael Orr and, and where, you know, who knows? Maybe he'll see this show or maybe there's some minister in uh, the area where he's living. Well, he actually lives here in Brentwood. Uh, and, and, and someone will get to him and, and disciple him yeah. Yeah. And, and get him to see a broader understanding of what his life uh, has been about and represents. And so, Ken, I do want to circle back to just Promise Keepers and just what, where, where does, because you told me uh, before the show that you initially got involved with Promise Keepers and was going to shut it down, <laughs> but you ended up pivoting and going another direction. To, to, when did you get involved with Promise Keepers and, and what is the health of the organization as it stands today? I'm glad you asked me this, that now and not two years ago. <laughs> uh, I got involved in 18. It's been a slog, and now, um, now we're doing really, really well. And all kinds of really great guys have thrown in with us. Uh, you know, uh, Tony Evans, Sam Rodriguez, A.R. Bernard, um, just amazing group of people. The board we have is phenomenal. In fact, Chad Hennings, uh, he said, I told him I was going to be on your show today. He's like, I, I, I love Jason. I go, I'll tell him you said He goes, he's not going to know who I am. I go, dude. Yeah, you got three Super Bowl rings. Of course he knows who you are. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's, it is phenomenal. And we're starting to see, you know, you really wonder sometimes, why did the Lord call you to do something? Because Promise Keepers is not on my radar. I was running, a, and still am running, a great foundation called Waterstone, and that is doing unbelievable work. So I kind of have two full-time jobs. And I'm starting to see it because I believe that the church has left its calling, as we were talking about backstage for a long time, Way more than people realize. When you look at us getting canceled by so many churches and institutions who say, 
promise keepers, I, don't come here. You're going to bring pit, picketers and people are going to be upset. Because I don't know if you know, but back in the 90s, promise keepers used to get huge picketers. Um, for no, I mean, telling men to be godly and, and good fathers and husbands and what a terrible thing. But um, we have had a lot of churches say we just don't want to put up with it. How are you as a church? Churches, churches. don't want to be involved with promises. Churches, the same thing. <laughs> a couple of them right here. Literally, when I thought you were telling us, I thought you were talking about like the world or <laughs> churches. No. We had a Christian college cancel us with a signed contract. And one of the things I said is, wait a minute, we did an event at Dallas Cowboy Stadium two years ago. So apparently we're okay with Dallas Cowboy Stadium, but not a Christian university. We've had several churches cancel us and say, we just don't, we just don't want any, anybody to disrupt our little lives. Man, we're in a well, fight. What, what's the issue? And, and if you really had to, is it the LGBTQ stuff? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's become a god in our society. And um, it is really, you know, we put out a statement. I don't know if you know this, in June on Pride Month. And it said that God created two genders. That's the part of the creation story in Genesis 3. That marriage is between a man and a woman. That Jesus Christ forgives all sinners and will accept everyone who is born again and believes in him. And that living for Christ is difficult and countercultural. And for that statement, we have now had four churches cancel Promise Keepers and said, we don't want you coming here because you made that statement. And I mean, it's as simple as I just told you. It's not, it's, someone's listening and going, well, maybe it was, more. no, no, no. It was very gracious. It was all scripture. And what I'm trying to do is tell people that we're in a fight. And, you know, it's interesting because God condemns, he gives this list of the worst sins in Revelation 21, 8. He says, here's eight sins. And if these eight sins typify your life, you are not a Christian, right? It says you will be thrown into the lake of fire. It's a pretty brutal verse. And that verse has of those sins, the ones you'd expect. Adultery, no, adulterers, no, it doesn't mean you committed adultery. It means that this is, typifies your life, right? Mm -hmm. If you're an adulterer, a murderer, an idolater, a sorcerer. Do you know what that verse starts with? The first one on there? Coward. Coward. Man, that's not the one that I would think would be at the top of God's list. That's, he says, let's start off, and the number one thing I can't stand, coward. it says you are not saved, is if you're a coward. Chapter and verse again. Revelation 21, 8. Got you. And by Keep the talking. way, it ends, with, it ends with all liars. Yep. So, which, you know, to me, liars are cowards. It's the same kind yeah. of deal. You lie because you're... Starting in the end. You know. And what's a coward? A coward is someone who doesn't do the right thing because of fear. Mm -hmm. And courage, a brave man, is someone who does the right thing despite fear. Because right. we're all afraid. Sure. It's a newsflash. We're all afraid. But what are you going to do with that fear? Mm. And that is where we are at a church today, the crossroads at which we find ourselves. It's a lot of what you guys talk about mm -hmm. every Wednesday on your show. Mm -hmm. Or when, I don't know when it airs, but when... Wednesday. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, is, is that very thing. Who will stand up for truth and say, no matter what, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. The Lord. We will obey God's word, and I don't care if it's popular. Because you look at the great cloud of witnesses it talks about in Hebrews who came before us. What did they give? And it's so much harder to live for Christ than to die for Christ. Yeah, yeah. The slander and the hatred and the mischaracterization of what you said. And I look at this family who adopted Michael Orr. I don't know the ins and outs of that.
But I can't imagine how betrayed you would feel. If you stand up for Jesus Christ, he promises you will be hated. Not you might be hated. You will be hated. I challenge men all the time. Who are your enemies and why? Do you have any enemies? Because if you don't, because of Christ, not because of being a jerk, <laughs> right? But if you're a gracious and loving man who loves God's word, if you don't have people who hate you, you ain't doing it right. That's right. Sorry, you got me preaching. No, it's great. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here looking at Revelations and I'm... I'm just sitting here because a lot of the things I do have been instinctual. And so I, I just sit here with you quoting that verse and, and me look to name this show fearless. That, that's just God. That's not me. That's that's not I didn't put a bunch of real thought into it. Uh, and and. But I, and it's something I just believed instinctually, instinctually but it, it's the seeds that was planted in me when I was young at 25th Street Baptist Church and my grandmother, Lovey Kennedy. It, it's, it's fear is, it, it causes so much destruction and, and causes us not to be willing to stand on truth. Is there a website or anything that uh, the audience, you want to direct the audience to? Uh, to support you guys? Yeah, we're launching a new one here in a couple of days. It's, it's promisekeepers.org. There's a website now, but we have it. put a bunch of money into making it good. There's a bunch of great material on there about dealing with um, a lot of stuff we've talked about. And, uh, and I do just, um, you know, I just want to say one thing. What I find that is the most thing that fills people with fear these days is worried about what people think of them. Social media has been a, a mind rot and a disease. Mm. And so men and women come to me and say, tell me how to be fearless. Like, how can I be fearless? What, what is the magic pill? And I said, well, I don't know the magic pill, but I will tell you the number one way to get there is to have an audience of one. If you say my goal of my life. You watched yesterday's show? <laughs> no. I probably, that's what I talked about, audience of one. Really? Yeah. yeah if, you, if, you're, uh, if your entire focus is Jesus Christ, Having him say, well done, a good and faithful servant. You won't give a, a rat's patoot what anybody else thinks. Well, it wasn't yesterday's show. It was, I was on the Twitter spaces last night, and I talked about an mm. audience. Because uh, my mother, I was, I was shared that my mother, you know, ranted about this last week. About she had to have a very difficult conversation about drawing a line in the sand. And she had to say, like, I got an audience of one. So Amen. this is the way it's going to be. Case <laughs> in point. I was too busy flying out here last night. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, thank you, Ken, for coming by. Anthony, great job as always. Uh, we'll play some harmony, and we'll see you tomorrow. So divided, stop fighting and stand tall. We used to be a nation, one united. Now we're headed for a downfall. God let your light shine down. What we need more than anything now. Harmony. Let's make a simple vow. Let's come together now. Harmony. Put all your weapons down. Love one another now. to wake up Choose love myself
sister, my brother See through the lies they tell us Cause together we're so much stronger God let your light shine down Get to me Open up your eyes and see 